All right, if you don't already know, this is the Galatians slash Colossians class. We're going to do Galatians up, up until the point that I just stop teaching and then David has to fill in whatever time I give him. So that's, I don't know if it was wise or not wise. We're only going to do two classes on Galatians. I'm going to give him the rest for Colossians. Or, or maybe it would be the opposite. We'll see. All right, if you do need a book, there's a box right in the back. You can get one. Uh, just a couple of reminders on that was that there is a link on really early on, basically page one. So if you want to get the, a PDF of the slides or, or a PDF of the book, or you want to get the slides, which actually I think I have my PDF and, power, and the PowerPoint natives format, you can get one of those. Get that there. The other feature was, I'll just remind you that there's a page in the back that parallels, that shows the parallels between Romans and Galatians. I'll just remind you of that because a lot of times you go through there and you can go and read Romans and you can get a more extended version of it. Also, I was curious if anybody figured out the, the symbolism with the title, okay? I think it's pretty obvious in hindsight, but you see, it's a bird trying to get back in its cage, which is the wrong direction, right? Uh, let's see, what else did I want to cover? So what we're going to do is we're, we're going to go through it in two phases. So we went through chapters one and two, and then we're going we're to see how far we get. I'm thinking we might actually get through the entire book now, so we're going to go through it fast once, and then we're going to go get it to go slow the next six weeks or so. Seven weeks, I guess would be. And the idea, I, I found that really useful because if you can see the big picture, it's just much easier to see how the parts fit once you see the big picture. I find the opposite is harder to do. And what we're going to do, we'll do the same thing we did last time, although we've upgraded our tech, thanks to Ryan, so this might work better without the squealing that comes at random times, which is kind of annoying. And then, let's see, anything, I don't think there's anything else I had to cover for review. So anything from last class? thought of or anything you wanted to mention in chapter one and two before we get to the next part. All right. So Russ, could you kick us off with a prayer? So I, we'll do the same last time, which is read the book and look for some of these things here. So I, I actually, again, I'm repeating myself from last time, but just for review. I stole these from somebody else. I mean, it's how most good ideas you take them from somebody else. The, there's a book called, by Mortimer Adler, How to Read a Book. And he gave a bunch of good concepts. I read that book, and it was actually really good. And of course, you have to read the book, so there's a little bit meta there. But uh, I found it really useful, and I found that I found a that I wound up reading the Bible better because of the concepts from it. And I know some of you have read that. I know Boyd's read that as well. Uh, so I find it really useful. So we're going to look for the audience, the author, and the occasion. So three things, something about them. If you do nothing else, look for feeling. There's a lot of feeling. So that you can look for that in the author. You can also look on how the, the account would have landed on the audience. How would they have felt feeling, hearing this from them? Or how would this, when Paul tells stories about an account of something that's happened historically. Put yourself in the position of those people. How would they felt? 
All right, let's do this. Am I unmuted? Chapter 3. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it wasn't vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So that those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to men, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul the covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made and was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not, for if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned, until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, 
that you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. As an aside, I do not like that chapter break. So somebody, I've taught this before, and it was, it was Josh Sater who picked up that when I broke up, the, broke up the content in the book, I actually have overlap. Like the one section ends here, and the next one actually overlaps with the prior one, because it's like you cut it off in chapter four, and it's right in the middle of an idea. But such as it is, that's what we got. Okay, what did you all notice? Or what, what questions? Remember, I like questions, especially if I have no clue what the answer is, because that forces me to think. Yes, sir. Raymond. Yes, setting a precedent with Abraham. Okay, this isn't a precedent with some just rando. I mean, this is Abraham, which makes it a pretty powerful precedent. Yeah, good point. And of faith. Okay, exactly. And you notice he's, he's appealing to something. He's saying, okay, you are saved by faith. This is not a new idea. This is a very old idea. This actually precedes the law. And the timing, I said the word precede, the timing here is actually pretty critical. Yes? He starts out with, you foolish Galatians, who has cast a spell on you? That's, that's some, uh, some tough language. You know, to say that to them, you've, you've been bewitched. You've been, you've been fooled. And uh, he says, before your very eyes, Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, right off the gate in chapter, chapter 3, I, I mean, this is pretty strong. You foolish Galatians. And he starts talking about, like, like you've been, had a spell cast over you. Uh, there's a little bit of possibly a concept play here between bewitched, because people, people felt like back then that you could be bewitched through the eyes. And then he says, but you saw him before your eyes he was crucified. Like, what, what do you need? What is going on here? It, think of it this way. What if somebody said, what if Paul had said, you foolish Americans. That has a bite to it. What else? Yeah, boy. The law, chapter 324, the law has become a tutor to lead us to Yeah, 324. So the law is a tutor. And, and that idea is actually going to be, we're going to talk about this a little more later, but the, the idea is noteworthy because the word here you use is pedagogist. It is not a tutor the way we think of a tutor, where it's somebody who teaches you something. It's actually a slave who gets you to the actual teacher. They just get you around to places, which means that the, the whole point of the law was not it, it teaches you in a certain sense, but it really its big thing was to get you to the actual teacher. Did you have something else you were going to say on that? Okay, go ahead. I didn't, I didn't know if I cut you off. Oh, I, I was going to say, you looked like you were going to say something, so I wasn't sure if you had something else to say. Okay, I guess I didn't cut you off. What else? Brett. Like what, what is Holy Grace had that makes that a rhetorical question for 
Yeah, so he, he brings up the fact that he says, listen, how did you get the spirit? Did you get it by law? Okay, you know that you didn't. And so having a discussion about that. It's interesting you mentioned this because I said that there are three subjects I wanted to cover. Well, and originally there were like five or six in the list. And talking about the Holy Spirit is one of them. Because I feel like sometimes we give the Holy Spirit a bit of a short shrift. We kind of read over things. I was talking, we were at the Raymonds. I was at the Raymonds on Sunday night. And we're talking about how you tend to read over things. You see it, but you don't see it because you're like, I don't know what that means. And you just keep moving on. It's like, and, and it came up. Somebody said, well, how many times does, I think it was Leanne who said something about how, well, how many times does spirit show up in there? I'm like, actually, I have a, I have a table in the back of my guide. I can tell you that number. It's 19. That was the fifth most common word in Galatians, other than filler words. I actually didn't put the word the in there because that would be ridiculous. That's the fifth most common word that actually is common. That's actually kind of a lot. So I think that's something we will talk about that. So what I did is I took it out as a separate subject that we would talk to separately. And I want to talk about it when we get to that point because I think that's a good point. I mean, he does mention miracles. The Holy Spirit was involved with that. But then there's the fruit of the Spirit, which is not necessarily miraculous in the way that we usually think of miraculous. Yes, John. So I'm wondering, I'm wondering about the semantic point that's made here, which you don't see super often, especially in the New Testament, the semantic point about the descendants versus descendants or the offspring versus offsprings. Because like we, we think of like the promised Abraham being that you're going to have a big family, right? Just to say, well, this is talking about one offspring. So I'm wondering like where that is in the Old Testament. <laughs> Yeah, because yeah, if you look at the way, so he's talking about the, the word descendant or seed. And Paul makes this big point about how it's not plural in a certain sense, it's singular. It's actually referring to Jesus. And the idea that I think he's trying to get to there is that the law was not going to be completed, fulfilled by the Jews, plural, but by a Jew, singular. Now, what's weird is that the word, morphologically, both in, in Hebrew and Greek, is singular, okay? So it's almost like there's a little bit of an ambiguity. Well, well, was it referring to the people, plural, or was it referring to one? And Paul looks at that and says, I, I think it's referring to one, right? The Jews didn't do their part, so Jesus came in. There's a reason Jesus is a Jew. Because the covenant said, when... Israel is faithful, then all of these things will happen, including all of the Gentile blessings. And so God kind of hacked, if you will, sent some, hacked the law by sending a Jew to do what the Jews, plural, could not do for themselves and solves it on their behalf. That's kind of the hot, what I think is going on there. But yeah, it's a, it's a little more complicated than that. We'll get into that too. Yes, Mike. There's a big emphasis, obviously, in this whole chapter about being justified by faith and not the law, right? And so... Right. Um, as I read this, I think, yes, if, if you were to ask most New Testament Christians, they would say, yes, we're justified by faith, as long as we do this and this and this and this and this. So what's the difference in being justified by faith or still having to make sure we do all of these things? Isn't that following a law anyway? Or, hmm. or are we still trying to be justified by a law, only a different law than Jewish law? And I would like that that conversation on in this class. Yes, I, I, so do I. Because <laughs> that's the key. That's the key to making so much sense out of this. And I agree what you said too, that we will, people will say, listen, I know we're justified by faith. It was a big deal in Galatians. So everybody's going to say this. But do you know what that means? And the reality is, I think most of us know somewhat of what that means and then over time come to know a lot more about what that means. It's, 
that's been my, my example, my life. And I think to understand that too, you have to understand that right. If you're, if you're going to make sense out of the rest of Galatians, he says freedom in Christ. What does that mean? That's one of the things we're going to talk about. What is the difference between the new law and the old law? You brought that up in your, your point too. Are we trying to be justified by a, just a new law? Law 2.0 just has different regulations in the first one? Or is it fundamentally different? It feels like to me, I think it's fundamentally different. There's something else going on here. Yes, Raymond. Oh, Alan. Uh, I, I just was looking there. Have you suffered so many things for nothing, if indeed it was for nothing? To, to think about this, sort of that picture on the front of your book, you, you've been set free, and you've suffered for that. You've suffered. Galatians have suffered. But right. for what? Nothing? Because now they're making it nothing. Right. Exactly. So this is some sort of history here where they, they went through something. And they suffered because of it. And now they're going to go back on that? I mean, what was the point of it then? Yes, Raymond. Yeah, so that's a good point. You have to keep in mind that there's a difference between justification and sanctification. Okay? You are justified. How much are you justified at the beginning of your spiritual life? It is 100%. Like, I've heard people say, well, say, well you know, this person over there, they rely too much on grace. No, you cannot rely too much on grace. It is 100% grace. And anything less than that, this does not mean you can go do whatever you want. Hence, sanctification. We have to become more like, like Christ, Right? And so that part of it is in there. This is not, we do have freedom in Christ, but we do not have, you can't interpret that freedom as, oh, I can just do whatever I want, including going sinning. That's not what Paul means. And we're going to have to resolve what, exactly what that means, but you have a good point. It's, it's actually a little bit inverse. Because we tend to think of, do all the things good, and then you get something. And it's like, this is like, no, you get something, and therefore you will do all the things good. Yes, sir. Yeah, good point. So, how did you become a Jew? Circumcised in the eighth day. You're a Jew. And you're born into it. That's different than the new birth, in which there's a decision and a choice that is made. And that new birth involves a change of heart. What we know is that a lot of people, they had circumcised in the eighth day, and they did not live this out. Okay, well, in the new covenant, we're talking about how we have circumcised hearts. We all have circumcised hearts. Okay, something is different here. Uh, did I say Bob? Did you, okay.
they were under that law. Why did Abraham do what he did? Good point. Because he wanted to. Yes. And that's the same it is with us. Our faith, our love for God, our doing what he tells us to do is not because we have to, but because we want to. Yes. And this is, okay, his point is that Abraham, you see something different than people in the law, where they were born in the law. Why did they have to do it? Because they had to. Abraham did it because he wanted to. So that right off the bat, it tells you about something about the substance of what faith looks like. Yes, John. Oh, I, I, I think that is a very good way to put it. They were under slavery out of a necessity. Okay. And what was it you said before that? Because of, I, you said something about their motivation. Like their motivation was flawed. And this is why that was happening. I can't remember how you put it. You put it a really good way. And I, I, they, they couldn't do it. Like they couldn't. Uh, they couldn't have faith how they wanted to or something. Yeah. They couldn't have faith like how they wanted to. Exactly. Like something was wrong. In the sense that this is, I think, why God gave me all these rules. I mean, you look at some of these rules, you're like, what is wrong with these people? Why do you have to be told not to do that? It just seems like it's obvious. But that tells you something's wrong there, okay? When you get up to the point of faith, we're talking about the, when God completes his, his message to humans, he tells a fuller picture. Yes? Okay, we will. And in fact, that has been, that passage has been the one, if you took one verse that I have done more study on, it's been that one. I wrote this whole thing on trying to align this back with, the, with Deuteronomy and reading all around it, trying to figure out a structure with that. Because it, one of the difficulties you can hear when people say, well, they don't believe in substitutionary atonement. My next question is, well, what do you mean by substitutionary atonement? Because they may give you a, an argument. Well, this is what I think it means. Well, I don't believe that either. If that's what you mean, I mean, I'd agree. I, I agree with you on that. What do you mean by that? But it seems to me, it's your, I, I read this and it's like, there's some sort of sense of substitution there in some sense. I mean, we can haggle over the word substitution, but I mean, it seems to me it's within the ballpark of it at least. And isn't that kind of a sacrificial system? Tells us something about that. I, so, yeah, we will definitely talk about that. Yes, Raymond. Yeah. Yeah, okay, I like how you put it. Because you, you're right, that it says, it says in there, because of transgression. So it just basically tells us the answer. When you look at other works of Paul, he, tell, he fills it in and says, there, there were some real problems there. And when you go back and you read the accounts when the law is given, it tells you that there were problems. Okay, that it, Moses says the reason why God was so 
frightening. Remember, when they saw God, they were like, yeah, we want to see God. Okay, never mind. (laughs) It's just because of the hardness of your heart. This tells us there was a problem there. And then I I think you said the word preservation. I think that's just what's going on here is that God was, okay, you're not there yet. You're not where I want you to be. So we're going we're gonna to clamp down so that it can preserve this because I need Israel to do a job. And it turns out Israel can't do the job. Jesus does the job. But it still needed to be preserved for that to happen. All right. Should we do chapter 4? All right. Ah, it wants me to log in with face ID, which is really awkward now. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. 
for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. All right. What did you all see? Yes, John. So I like sort of the, uh, at the beginning of the chapter, kind of continuing on from the previous thought about being, being a slave under the law. So like I love the comparison with being a slave under the law and kind of being a child. Where it's like I, when I think back to my childhood, it's like I don't agree with every decision that my parents made, but I'm glad that they set structure for me. Right? Like I'm, I'm glad because I think that like there's this idea coming up in society that like children are naturally completely organized beings in a society that messes all them up. It's completely opposite. It's, no, they are they tend towards chaos if right. you don't set them in order. And sometimes that order may be wrong or may not be good in the long term, right? Like it is arbitrary. But just having some kind of order in the present time can be good and you can learn later on that, okay, we can kind of step out of this a little bit, do right, it's like, but we'll still have your own babies, right? That's that's kinda I see this going on with this is the law. It had to be this way, but that's not the way it is now. Right? And, and there's good reason. Yeah. His his point's a good one because you think about how much there's a contrast between being slaves and sons. It's using relational terminology here. And I think that's really key. And I like, it, I like your point about how, as kids, we need that structure. Right? This whole idea of free-range children doesn't usually end well. And I would think if people think that there's not going to be chaos, if they just tried it, they'd realize, oh, there's chaos when you do it. <laughs> and then you get to be an adult. And it's, it's different. We, we just got done with this parenting class. And what I really liked about it was not just the parts about the parenting aspects, but when we talked about the principles that relate to parenting that are actually universal. And in that class, what I liked was that how he talks about how, uh, I guess both the teachers, how you have to have a lot of structure early on, and then you need to be move, almost instantly moving away to more principles. And eventually, you get to all principles. And if you don't do that right, it's not going to end well. You flip that, it's the worst case scenario. Kids have no clue what the principles mean at the beginning. And you try to bolt down on rules with adults, and it's also not going to end well. Okay, you got to get that, that right. And I think that's what's going on here as well. Yes. I, I like how he describes um, you know, the, the history of the Old Testament not as just you know, hundreds of generations of Jews, but like we're treating Israel as a, a person that is growing up. Um, so not just that you know, I have learned as I have grown up over my you know, 30-some years, but that you know, corporately like all of the people have. Um, so it's kind of helpful to keep that in mind when you're looking back at these you know, one-off stories in the Old Testament and you're trying to make sense of Yeah, it's a good point. He does. He treats Israel as if it's like one being a child. Like God has an, 
And, and there's a lot of Old Testament passages that refer to God as a relationship with Israel, either as a child or as a, as a husband. As a, I, I mean, I, I remember talking to somebody, and he would talk about, he'd use the phrase, you know, the whole, one of the, the whole point of this is to make you fall in love with God. And I was like, yeah, fall in love. It's kind of like romantic terminology. I was like, I just don't use that for God. It just strikes me as weird. But here's the thing. You go and read the Old Testament, sometimes God uses the marriage covenant as a, a, an example of his covenant with Israel. So, I mean, that's, it sounds weird to me, but I don't think he's wrong. I think he's got scriptural support for that. And something you said triggered a thought, too, because I remember talking to Mindy. You ever heard somebody say, and Mindy brought this up, how people say, well, people are different now. The people are somehow better. And I, I'm always confused by that because have they not read history? I mean, within the last 80 years, we had a whole nation, a first world nation, not some just backwoods nation, just killing millions of people. Just saying, hey, let's just let's eliminate the Jews. Well, I mean, this is 80 years ago, and human history, that's not that long. Okay, so I don't think humans have changed, but I, what I do think has changed is that God's lesson that took thousands of years to give to us has changed. It has evolved. It has been fulfilled, right? That part of it's different which can help us to be a better people, but I don't think human beings have actually changed, unfortunately. Jill. Yes, he brings up a point about pronouns. Right? When he says we, what is, who is he referring to here? And, and I actually, you know what I'll do to, to, to be super diligent about it? I'll go through every pronoun and put them in a table and see if he's consistent with it. But I think that Paul does use the pronouns in a significant way, not just here. When he talks about, like in Romans, it's pretty clear when he's talking about we. He's saying, hey, listen, we know. Now, it's, there can be a little bit of a break there because earlier in chapter 2, I think when he says we know that he's talking about himself and the Jews and also Peter and James and the other apostles, which he just said, I talked to them, I had worries about maybe they weren't supporting my mission and, and they were all on the same page. And we all know we can't go back to the law to be justified. Even when Peter acted inconsistently, Peter knows this. Yes, Ryan. Yeah, it's a good point. So, about, he's talking about, what about the word flesh? Like, what is that exactly did that mean? Because I think sometimes people mean flesh, they think of physical, just physical body. Okay, the problem with that is, sometimes Paul means this in a very negative way, and we're supposed to be resurrected. So how does that work? Well, Paul actually uses two different words for this. And you can see it in English translations where the word soma means body, and so he means body just in a generic sense. It just means body. It's morally neutral, if not possibly positive. Sarks is the word he uses for flesh. And that's for the, the body that has been touched by sin. And Paul's pretty consistent with that. And, and I think it's a good point because if we don't see that, there's some people who think that in the resurrection we're just going to be these flow, free-floating spirits that just fly around. 
Like, and that's, that's not actually Christianity. It is a, a resurrection of something. It's a spiritual body, so there's a difference. But it does say it's a body. The whole thing of free-floating existence is more like something else, like Platonism. But yeah, it's, it's a little bit different. Yes? Um, I'm very curious at some time, he says, do you know it was because of physical illness that I first proclaimed the gospel to you? That was the start. What was that? Yeah, in the realities are some mystery here. Okay, he says he had to he had to go there. He, he connected with them because of a physical infirmity. What was that? The best you can't say this with one hundred percent, but I think the best case that I could make is that it's something wrong with his eyes. Because he also says, he's like, you would have given your eyes out to me if you could have, which is an interesting way to put it. And then at the end, he says, see with what large letters I write with? Well, I thought you were writing the whole letter, Paul. Now, it was very common that they use, it's called amanuensis, where you would use somebody else to write it down for you, and you would dictate to them. But then he, Paul seems to have a, and he's done this in more than one book, where he pens the end of it. So it could be he's using large letters because maybe his vision is failing, which would fit. It's, it's also, it feeds, it sounds like a minor fact that he's bringing up here, but it also may tell us a little bit about when Galatians is written. Because remember, he, he says why he went there. He went there because he had to stop. Now, if he had to stop, then that means that it was probably something along one of his missionary journeys. It wasn't far out from one of the, you know, he didn't just shoot off somewhere and then come back. He didn't plan to go there, and he just had to stop and stay longer. And there's, there's two, we're going to talk about this later, but the South Galatian and the North Galatian theory. The North Galatian theory puts it farther away, outside of his moral missionary journey. Put it, we put it later, too. So I think the evidence is pretty, it's a lot stronger on the South Galatian theory, which does move, this is not why I hold this view, but it does move the writing of Galatians earlier. But I think that fits the timeline better. And it also fits the fact that, he, again, it'd be hard for him to shoot off somewhere if he... It's not what he says would happen, right? It says he was planning to go somewhere and got sick and something happened. Also, I read some books on, actually there were white papers, on how did people back then think about physical infirmities and disabilities. And, you know, there's a spectrum there, but there's a lot of people who just did not look kindly on people who had physical problems. And Paul's granting that they did not look down on him because of that, which is a bit of a difference from what was probably common in their society. Mike? Really like, really like verse 9. Because he starts off by saying, but now after you have known God, it, wait a minute, actually, rather, you are known by God. Uh, yes. And this idea, this comes right after this idea of talking about being adopted in sons. And then the, the, the fact that it's not the child that adopts the parents, it's the parent that adopts the child. And then it goes back to being justified by faith, where there's really nothing that I can do to force God to adopt me or to make me a son. It's because of his mercy and grace that he justifies me and yeah, I hundred percent. This is a really good point. He doesn't say it's just you know God. It's a, oh, it's almost like he stops. It's actually, you are known by God, and that connecting to that whole idea of adoption is really rather significant, especially when you talk about the first century where people would use adoption to raise someone else's status. It's like I said, you can't choose to be adopted. Somebody has to choose to want to adopt you first. That's how this works, uh, Raymond.
Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The whole Sarah and Hagar story is one in which somebody, well, actually, Abraham messes up when he's like, oh, you know, I guess I'm going to have to make this happen. I guess, it, it, I guess it's on me to make this promise happen. That story does not end well. Okay, <laughs> That's, It starts off bad, and it doesn't get any better. It just keeps getting worse. And that was, of course, not the way God was going to do it. I, I, I like how you opened it. There's not a lot of do here. Right? There's, there's a tendency for sometimes we can get so quick on, well, let me tell you all the stuff you got to do. Well, Paul doesn't get that until later. Okay, that should be a response to something else. It's a response to it, though. Yes, Bob. The big problem that Israel had was that they kept wanting to go back. They wanted to go back to Egypt. They went back to their idols. They went back to the uh, idols of the land and all that. Paul's dealing with the same issue here with them uh, in, in verse 9. Uh, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? Uh, so they're wanting to go back. How, what is he telling them to do? Uh, I think maybe verse 12 involves the answer to that or his way of dealing with that. In that, brothers, I entreat you, become as I am. For I also have become as you are. I'm here not living as a Jew, not going back to my former Judaism where I was, you know, had a lot of uh, position. I'm here with you. This is where you need to be. You need to be like me, and I'm like you. That's where you need to be. Don't go back to what you were. And Paul has a lot of credibility here, given his background, which he says he zealously went after these these traditions. Zealously. And it's like, I'm not even going back. You guys definitely shouldn't go back. And it's a step back, right? The terminology would work perfectly, too. Yes, ma'am. Abraham, that's Jesus Christ. 
And so it's flesh and spirit all the way throughout here. That's being, it's a tug of war. Yeah. Flesh and spirit. Yeah, it's a good way to put it. It's a tug of war between flesh and spirit. Paul's pretty consistent on that, not just here in Galatians. Exactly. And you see something about this, too, because he gets to the fruit of the spirit. And you look at the fruit of the spirit, but then you also compare it about how his relationship with the Galatians has been collapsing. It's like, you know, you guys would have, you guys treated me like I was Jesus Christ himself. And now I'm your enemy. And then it's not just that. It's the relationship within themselves that's been changing. He says, be, ca- be careful. You guys keep biting each one each other, you just might devour one another. I mean, that's pretty strong terminology. Yes? Uh, kind of touched on it there, but when he says, so then have I become your enemy by telling you the truth, I don't know how many times I've felt that, said that, or heard that in working with people, and it's something of a fear that I fear I will become their enemy. Maybe I won't say anything, but really I need to see myself in that light that I've got to step up and be that enemy to them. You know, of course the love and all that in that way, but I've got to say, that's what I'll take on if that's what's necessary for this person's life. Yeah, true, because by you not saying something, you're saying something. Right? You're saying, maybe you're not worth it, or I don't think you'll actually change, or you don't deserve this. There's a proverb, which I really like, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Because a good friend tells you what you need to hear, not just what you want to hear. Yes, Raymond? This may be risky, so I'll pose it as a question. Okay. <laughs> is, is he comparing work to the law for I think the answer is yes. He is putting the works of the law the same as elemental spirits. He, I think he's saying, like, okay, you guys, and he's, this is consistent with Romans 2. When you were Gentiles, you knew something about God. Not a lot. Only enough for you to be condemned, okay? <laughs> That's what he's saying in Romans 2. And you going back to the law is like you going back to that. Okay, so both of it is, it's not a good place. And, and either way, it ends in the same, it ends in the same thing. It ends with you and a curse. Yeah, I, I, yes, I like the way you put it. Listen to what he said here. Them going back to the law is actually worse because it looks religious. It's one thing if he's out there sacrificing to Apollo. You look at that and well, obviously that does not, that's not, it doesn't make any sense. It looks worse when it looks religious. And there's something in C.S. Lewis, the book, The Great Divorce. I have read this over and over again. It's not about a divorce like a marriage divorce. But there's a line in there where there's this woman who just loves her kids so much. She, everything in her life is about her kids. She will do everything for her kids. She loves them so much that she wants them to join her there in hell. And they're having this conversation about it with Lewis and, and it's George MacDonald. And as they work through it, George MacDonald explains, he said, when something that is good is corrupted, it is far worse when it is something, something that is very important and worthwhile. It is worse when that's corrupted when it's, than something that's just a small little thing. He said, after all, I can't remember the exact way he puts it, but it's something like, after all, what does more damage? An animal that goes bad or an angel that goes bad? 
And I, I thought that's actually a really good point because at least, at least you know these other things are not a big deal. Yes, ma'am. Good point. Yeah, it's funny when you say that because what, what, right when you were talking, that first popped in my head. Yeah, it's just, actually better if you hadn't even known than have gone back. All right. You know, you want to hear something funny? I thought we'd get through all the chapters. Yeah, you knew where I was going with that. <laughs> okay. What else y- y'all got? Let's. But there's no point in even starting up the next chapter. Yes, Jill. Good point. Yeah, there's a lot of... I, I, the thing about Paul is that he doesn't quote the verses. He's quoting the entire context. So if you see something and he refers to something, Habakkuk 2 verse 4, I don't think he's quoting Habakkuk 2 verse 4. I think he's quoting Habakkuk. He expects you to know the background. And when you read Habakkuk, and you read the whole thing, and then you start looking, it's like, oh, this makes so much more sense. So, yeah, we'll, we will dig into that. All right. That was the second bell, right? Okay. Thank you all.